There it goes. Thank you. I love you guys. All right, so as is our custom, if you have not been here, this is your first time, there are a lot of weeks we begin with an opening question to discuss with your neighbors, and tonight is one of those nights. So tonight, the question for you is, if you were given all power for just one day, what would you do with that power? So you can turn to your neighbors, you've got a couple minutes, and then we'll come back. many ways that that question should and could have gone. What do you do with all power? And we're going to kind of hold on to that just a little bit. What do we do when we are given all power, even just for a little bit? What would we do with it? Um, So my husband and I, Casey, have been married almost 18 years. And we have, I know, 18 years. It's awesome. We have three boys, uh, David, who is 12, Bentley, who is 12, and Landon, who is almost 10. And my dear, loving, kind husband has been preparing me for the changes that are about to hit my home. We have talked about the hormones and the smells, the general just kind of funk that seems to come with three boys this age. He has been kindly preparing me for. Um, But, I mean, I grew up with a brother Like, I have a younger brother, and I have lots of cousins who are boys, and so in my mind, I'm thinking, I got this. I mean, I've been around boys. I've experienced this. I, all right, I got it. Um, Until it turns out, I really, I wasn't ready. I wasn't. Um, So I went shopping with my 12-year-old, David, and he wanted new tennis shoes. He is really, really hard on his tennis shoes. I don't, that is one thing that fathoms me. I don't know how you can be this hard on tennis shoes. And so he picks the store, because he has something in mind he has not shared with me. And we get to the store, and he sees the shoe that he desperately wants, all white. An all white pair of tennis shoes for a 12-year-old boy that he wants to wear every day. And I looked at him and said, no, no, honey, (laughs) it's not going to work. We can't, you can't do this. I mean, as soon as you walk out of the store, they're going to be black. Like, this makes no sense that you would spend money on this. Mom and dad are out. I'm sorry. We're not helping you buy this pair of shoes. And so then, right next to this white pair of shoes is the exact same shoe, just a different color. I think, I mean, this is a great compromise right here. David, what do you think of this shoe? Like, right here, it's the same shoe. And he does this move. He puts his arm around me. (laughs) 
And he kind of leans his head on my shoulder because he's still a little bit shorter than me. And he begins to pat my back. <laughs> and he goes, no, mom, no. Like he is pitying me for my style choices. And in this moment, I thought, I'm, I'm not ready for this. Like, this is the beginning of it, and I'm not ready. <laughs> Here it is. Um, he did not get the white pair of shoes, nor the other pair of shoes. He didn't get any of the shoes there that day. So just so you know the end of the story, that's where it was. Um, and I think that's a little bit of what's happening tonight in John 13. See, the disciples are going to encounter Jesus in this upper room. And they just, they're just not quite able to grasp it. And Peter, especially, is going to struggle with how things are playing out. Like, this is what the kingdom looks like? Like, are you sure? Like, I thought I knew, but maybe I don't. And it's funny, because I, I think back to Casey trying to prepare me. Jesus has been telling these guys, I mean, the last three years, what's coming. He's not been um, unclear. Now, sometimes it was a little more subtle, but he's told them what's to come. He actually, if we go back just a little bit before our text in John 12, 23, it says, Jesus replied to them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies... It produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus has been telling them what is to come. Now, if you were here last week, uh, Drew did, he was doing John 4, but he gave us a little overview of how the book of John is set up. So the first 12 chapters of John are considered the book of signs, and it's kind of his public ministry. And then we get to chapter 13, and to the end of the book, it's focused in on his private ministry, these last few days of his life here on earth, and it's called the book of of glory, and that's where we find ourselves tonight, is in this first chapter of the book of glory. And Jesus is preparing to return to the Father, and that must include his arrest, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. But we're getting ahead of the story just a little bit. All right, so I want to read for us John 13. If you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be. The first two verses for us. It says, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. All right, so we open up, and the Passover meal has begun. This is the same one that's described in the other synoptic gospels as this kind of last meal with his disciples. It's a special meal, the Passover meal. There's going to be bread and wine, and there's going to be the lamb. 
There's going to be a lot happening in this upper room. But he does something else. John tells us that Jesus' hour has come. This moment that Jesus has lived his life in anticipation of is finally here. And if you remember back again to last week with Drew, he used that phrase also in John 4, his time had not come. His hour was not here. See, John, when he talks about the hour, this phrase, the hour, he is always connecting it to Jesus on the cross. And here we see it. The cross is near. Actually, it's just a day away. It is that close. And Jesus is using these last few hours to minister to his disciples. Our text says he loved them. He loved them to the very end. So the word for that in Greek is telos. And it's translated to the end, which brings this idea of completion. Or another way would say the uttermost. Jesus loved them so much that he was going to see this through to the very end, no matter what the personal cost was to him. And then it follows with this phrase about the devil. Because here's the thing. Jesus' love is so great that the schemes of the devil cannot thwart what he is about to do Although we do see here that Satan has already been at work doing the things that he does best. He's deceiving and manipulating and devouring and it appears that Judas is his prey. And it doesn't appear from this section of the text that Judas himself or even anyone outside of Jesus really gets a sense of the darkness that is surrounding him. See, I don't think if you put all the disciples in a lineup, you could easily go, oh, that one right there. He's the guy, that Judas. He's there in the room with the other 11. He doesn't stand out. And we actually don't see until verse 27, which we won't get to tonight, that Jesus, Judas responds in action to what Satan has been doing to him internally, for we don't really know how long. And it just leaves us here kind of with this idea of Satan at work in the background as we keep moving through our text. We're going to pick up again in verse 3. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from the supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself, Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. See, Judas doesn't know what's happening. Judas doesn't know what's to come. But Jesus does. Jesus, who is God incarnate, meaning he is God in the flesh, knows he is all-powerful. He is all-sovereign. There is nothing that is happening without his knowledge. He is both 100% God, 
human and 100% divine and everything is his. I love it. Everything is his. Like you cannot get higher than God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, this trinity, this beautiful three in one. You can't get higher than that. There's nothing outside of that. And so what does this all divine, all powerful, what does he do? He gets up from the table and he begins to put on the clothes of a slave. And he does something even crazier than that. He, he begins to do the work of a slave. See, in the ancient world, foot washing was really menial. I know that sounds weird. I mean, we do that all the time, like, right? We just wash each other's feet like that's no big deal. Um, it was really menial, very demeaning. No one wanted this job. And if you were a Jewish slave... Like, you would be exempt from this. They would actually go get a Gentile slave. Like, that's how lowly we thought of those that would wash someone's feet to do the ceremonial cleaning. But here, there are no slaves to wash the feet. And so the king of kings lowers himself to a dirt floor, and he begins to remove the sandals from Andrew's feet and he begins to wash them and he begins to dry them and then he moves down the line we go to Philip we go to Judas and he keeps going until we get to Peter we get to Peter in verse 6 it says he came to Simon Peter who asked him Lord are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. Peter is shocked. He just, he can't take it in. It's so much. How could Jesus the Lord of Lords, like lower himself to this. Like it would have been completely applicable, um, appropriate for Peter to wash Jesus' feet. It really, any of the disciples to wash Jesus. He's clearly the much higher social status by a long shot. Like that makes sense. Like Peter and the disciples are so inferior to Jesus in every way. Like, Peter doesn't deserve this. It's not right. And the reality is, he's, it's true. Like, he does not deserve what Jesus is doing for him. Yet that isn't what Jesus points out to the 12. 
See, this, just, this isn't just a lesson on the humble service. There is more going on in this foot washing. See, this washing is a shadow of a greater act of sacrificial service still to come. There is a washing that only Jesus can offer. In verse 8, it reads, If I don't wash you, if Peter doesn't accept this work from Jesus, he is missing something that only Jesus can offer. And I love how the NLT kind of translates this verse. It says, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And I so appreciate Peter's response. Like this zeal for wanting it more and more. Like whatever you're offering Jesus, I want more of it then. Like if a little is good, a little washing, please give me more. It's kind of like my children always asking for candy, like a little bit of candy is good. So, I mean, a ton of candy must be better. Like, it must be greater. And Peter is in the same, like, I mean, if you're going to wash my feet and there's something special, but I want all of it. Lord, do all of it. And yet Peter doesn't understand. And I love Jesus's patience and gentleness, explaining, like, what I am doing is sufficient. Not more is needed. What I am doing is sufficient. And then we have this seemingly, I don't know if you caught it at the end, odd return of the subject of Judas again. He's popped up again. Judas has sat quietly in the room, allowing Jesus to wash his feet. He has heard Jesus speak of, of needing to belong to him, that there's something more happening. But none of this seems to have changed or altered his heart posture at all. He is still set to betray Jesus. Darkness still surrounds him. And Jesus makes it clear that he is not clean because Jesus knows. And if we go back just a little bit in John, we go John 6, 64. Let me find 6, 64 here. Jesus says, but there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the very beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. Jesus knows all the way at the beginning as he's calling them in that Judas is going to sit in this room. He's going to accept the washing and his heart will not be changed. This is no surprise to Jesus. And I think John is trying to draw our minds to the fact again of this divine. You cannot manipulate him. You cannot trick him. Our hearts are always going to be laid bare before Jesus. We're going to continue on verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet... And put on his outer clothing and reclined again. He said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and you also, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also do just as I have done 
for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and his messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So Jesus begins this section with this rhetorical question, do you know what I have done for you? No, Jesus, no, they don't. One, he's already told them they really aren't going to understand until the, until the end. Two, Peter's kind of already showed his hand. He's the only one that's voiced it, but he, he does not understand what's happening. And three, there, if we go back in the gospel, there are moment after moment where Jesus is doing these powerful acts and the disciples have no idea what to do with it. And so privately begin to ask him, okay, what, okay, what was that? What are we doing? So no, they don't know what he has just done. And he is so kind in his patience. And as he has done so many times, we see him teaching his disciples, explaining, you have followed me for years, calling me teacher, which means rabbi, religious leader, and you've called me Lord, connecting this idea of master, this authority over us. So what's he doing with these two words? Teacher, rabbi, Lord. See, there are implications to these titles that they are calling Jesus. If he, their Lord and his teacher, this Lord, master, like if he with supreme authority, is willing to get down low and serve. How much more should that be true of his disciples? Can you really be my disciple if you are unwilling to follow what I am doing? Now, to be clear, the sacrificial act and self-giving love that Jesus is about to endure on the cross, it cannot be matched, and it cannot be repeated. But there is an expectation that those that belong to Jesus and follow him will indeed imitate his self-giving service. Wash each other's feet. Don't just give a lip service. Don't just be hearers of this teaching. Be doers of it. So the question is, why don't we wash each other's feet? We're going to leave it there. We're going to take a little break, go to the restroom, get a drink, and we'll be back. All right. So before before the award ceremony, we left this question. So why is it that we don't wash each other's feet. Like, if this is what Jesus said, I want you to wash one another's feet, why is it that we are not doing that? Now, to be fair, there are probably um, some specific denominations that do do this, and even next week, as we prepare for Easter Sunday, there are many churches, some even in town, that will be doing this on Thursday to do a foot washing, kind of walking through the steps that Jesus did as he prepares for Easter Sunday. Um, And then there's sometimes retreats, maybe a volunteer banquet, we see this done. But as a whole, 
There's not a lot of foot washing. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, I think the big one is, um, is that it just culturally does not quite fit for us today. There's not as much significance to this as it would have been in their time. And so um, when we are looking at scripture, we want to kind of figure out what is the timeless truth, not one that's just stuck in that culture, but one that fits throughout time. And so I think what Jesus is getting at is less the actual foot washing and more the sacrificial serving. I think another reason that we don't do foot washing slash sacrificial serving is because, and this one hits a little more for me, a little harder, is we actually kind of hate it. We actually don't really like that idea. It's messy and it's humbling. It's not easy and it's not convenient. Like it's costly to do what Jesus is doing and we we don't really like that. See, it rubs against our culture, doesn't it? Like everywhere we go, on campus and Stillwater, Anywhere in the U.S. in general, leave the country, I don't think it's just as here. <laughs> like it rubs against what we are being told. Being told to build up your treasures for yourself. Make much of you. Power and fame and wealth. Like those things, those are what's going to make you happy. Those things are going to make you Great. Those things are going to sustain you. Those things are going to make you worthy. And with very little effort, because I will speak for myself, I prefer the path of least resistance far too often. As we kind of easily drift further from this truth that Jesus is getting at, either deeming it like just below me altogether, Like, we can go that far, right? I'm sure I'm not the only one. No, that's, no, I can't do that. That's too much. That's too costly. Or, I've also seen this shift, where we take serving, and then we use it as a tool to make much of me, our favorite subject, ourselves. And so it just becomes yet another way that I feel my pleasure and my gain and my power. And I use serving to kind of pad the resume because it looks good. Yeah, sure, I'll serve. Yeah, it looks good for future employers, so it looks good for me. And I can use service as a way to feel good on those days that I don't really feel so great about myself, kind of get a punch in the arm. I can use it just as this checkbox to make myself feel like I'm worthy. Look, look at all the good things I did. Look at all the people I helped. And I use service as yet another way to gain influence, another way to gain recognition. Look at me. And that's not what Jesus is asking. He doesn't need us to look at me. Or you. 
He's asking us to move service into this completely upheaval turn like it, that doesn't make sense in our culture. He's washing their feet. John Piper kind of says it a little bit like this. I'm kind of summarizing. He says, Jesus got low, lower than the rank of his disciples so that he could lift them up. See, the mindset of serving like this means you serve in a way that is useful to lifting others up because it's not about you and it never has been. This kind of self-sacrificing service to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, man, the world takes notice of that because it doesn't make sense. What do you mean you wash each other's feet? What do you mean you get nothing out of this? What do you mean no one took a, a picture and posted it everywhere? Like you, you just served them for no gain? Like that doesn't make sense. Using your time and your energy and your resources not for things for you, but for others. Like how crazy would that be if we believed this? If we believed what Jesus is doing and flipping this completely upside down, what it means to be great is turned completely. If we flip back to Matthew 20... We catch this interesting moment where a mom is asking Jesus to put her two sons on the throne next to him. Thanks, Mom. And here's Jesus. Matthew 20, verse 25. This is Jesus' response. Jesus called them over, and he said... You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Matthew 23, 11, he continues, The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And if we continue in John 13, when we get to verse 35, it reads, but everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, in God's kingdom, greatness comes as you assume the role of a servant. It's a race to the bottom. He flips it but they're tied together. If we go to Philippians 2, it's one of my favorites. I actually think I used it when I taught in the fall, so if you're here, you get to hear it again. Philippians 2, I'm going to start in verse 3. 
This is again talking about Jesus. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of man, or in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, they're tied. You want to be great, you get low. And when you're low, the Lord will make you great in his kingdom. They are tied together, and Jesus exemplifies it perfectly. So what does that look like for us? What does it look like for us to get low, to race to the bottom? I think our first thoughts kind of go to the the big things that we even heard tonight. Like we're going to go and we're going to go to Kenya and we're going to go to the Ivory Coast and we're going to serve refugees and we're going to go to Chile and we're going to be really uncomfortable for probably eight weeks in a whole different place. And we're going to serve there. Whatever they ask, I'm going to do. And I think another natural one is in our church, right? We were in Ephesians through the fall of using our giftings here at the church, build up the body, change those diapers of the rooms of the babies, get crazy with junior high students. Like There's so many ways to serve within the church. But can I tell you, in your day-to-day, what if you served your roommates? Like, what if you did that dish-filled sink that has been hanging out for weeks because no one can remember whose dishes they are and nobody really wants to do them, right? What if you did those without being asked, without the grumbling, but you serve your roommates by cleaning up? Things that aren't yours to clean up. What would it look like to serve within your table group? Or with your host? Like not just serving those that are kind of easy to serve, right? There are some that are easier to love and serve than others. But what does that look like to serve them? To notice them? to see what they need, that you might lift them up. Some of you are already in leadership positions in lots of different places on campus, lots of different places around town, maybe here at the church. Like, what does it look like to come early and prepare the coffee and take out the trash to find the things that no one else on your team really cares to do, that they would avoid at all costs if possible, but if you tell them, they'll do it. What if you just do it?
using our gifts, using our resources, using our energy to pour into God's kingdom, to pour into his people, lifting them up, lifting the Lord up, not us. And I want to confess, like there was so much conviction over this as I was preparing. Like this is heavy, guys. See, this lesson is fairly easy to understand, right? We're going to get low like Jesus got low. And it's even easy for the words to come out. Praise the Lord. But it's really hard to do. Denying myself. Humbling myself. That's hard. And I need the Lord to help me with that. Because sometimes I lack the motivation to do it. I lack the desire to do it. Even when I want to believe it, it can be hard to do. See, John 13 actually tells us what we are to do when we are lacking motivation and lacking desire. Actually, that's not fully true. It actually tells us who we are to look to when we are lacking motivation and desire to serve in this way. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, The form of God was not exchanged for the form of a servant. It was revealed in the form of a servant. It's who he's always been. See, this encounter with Jesus in the upper room as he washes his disciples' feet has been pointing to so much more. And I have wondered as I've been reading and rereading and thinking and pondering, what is it that Jesus was pondering on as he knelt before them and washed their feet and as Peter kind of boldly tries to refuse this washing, the thing that he needs, And with great love and tenderness, I think he's holding back from saying, Peter, you have no idea what humiliation waits for me. You are bothered by the fact that I would wrap myself in the attire of a slave? Like I'm about to be stripped naked and exposed to everyone passing by. Like you are bothered that I would lower myself to wash your feet? Like I left my throne on high to put on flesh and I will soon be publicly mocked and beaten and spit on and crucified that you might be cleansed from sin and death forever. Peter, you have no idea how much more I need to do for you than just wash your feet. See, he's about to wash, be washed in the blood of Calvary 
And Peter doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. And it isn't until he sees Jesus, the resurrected form, that it begins to make sense. And you and I come tonight and we open this text as we have his word right here. And the question is, table students, do you know what he has done for you in your place? See, this love, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's 1 John 4.10. See, there is no explanation of the cross other than the love of God. Like there can be no other. For we are certainly, we certainly don't deserve it. And we can never earn it. But when we grasp this grace, this love, this self-giving sacrifice, when we grasp it, how much has been lavished, it should compel us to go and to do as he has done, to lower ourselves and make much of him in every way we can, in every way we can find to get down and make much of him. Put on those clothes of humility and service to our great king. Okay, let's pray. Lord, where we confess God, that we do not always grasp God, your lavished love upon us. God, would you help us to see it? God, would you help us to take it in? God, this free gift of your great love sent through your son oh father would that be the story of our lives father that you would become more and more and more and we would become less and less and less Lord apart from you we cannot do it and so I ask father that you would do it would you help us, God, to love you and serve you and spend our lives pouring into your kingdom? Amen.